This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, it's Cindy Adams, Madam Adams from the New York Post. I'm about to burble. I would like to say all right already with inflation, and we need to take a loan to buy eggs. Here's the olden days. Nobody had computer things. Nobody had money either. A 1915 manicure using high-gloss car paint cost under a quarter. The manicurist probably kept the change. A man earned $687 a year. 1920, a car was $500. Gas in 1915. Ready? 12 cents a gallon. A New York apartment rent, $60 a month. Air conditioning was a broken window. Milk, 9 cents. Bagels, with or without a schmear, this I don't know, 6 cents. Women's shoes, $7. Men's, 3 bucks. A movie theater, back when we had those, 15 cents. And in those days, it was a double feature, plus they gave away dishes. High Life was a radio that cost $35. Couples night out at a diner, ready? 70 cents. First class stamp, two cents. Life insurance, a buck a month. 1919, a century ago, summarized as the worst year in 20th century American history, got us the rotary dial and the Hotel Pennsylvania, across from Penn Station, as the world's most popular hotel, okay? Plus, just like now today, we had revolution. Terrorism, race riots, the flu pandemic's third brutal wave, workers on strike, progressives pushing, citizens feeling alienated from the government, bombings in the first wave of U.S. anarchy. And then President Woodrow Wilson, who said, quote, I predict with absolute certainty that within another generation will be another world war. Okay, now, from 2015 to 2019, a little news. New York, the milk cow, sent $116 billion more to the feds than they got back in state aid, while Mitch McConnell's home state, Kentucky, of which surely some of you may have heard, got $148 billion beyond what they contributed. Wait, more new news. British Columbia just announced a policy as no more Mr., Miss, or Ms. It's now to be forever onward mix. M-X, gender neutral, said like the word mix. M-I-X. At a cocktail party, my intro could be, Hi, I'm Mixed Up Mix Adams. Also, there was just an upstate ad against wealthy New York people's intrusion. It actually said we don't want any more New York City people moving here. Wow. Like anyone but Governor Hochul is rushing to settle in Buffalo. Now, showbiz, showbiz, showbiz. There was recently a health awards luncheon. Amy Schumer raffled off lines she called too mean to burp at the Academy Awards. Jokes like, quote, always good to be with the corpse of Nicole Kidman. And, quote, 
Her favorite day to have sex with her husband is tomorrow. You want to know something? At the Oscars, seems to me the wrong person got slapped. Okay, so how did some of our big names get started? I decided to find out. Judd Apatow started as a dishwasher in Long Island's East Side Comedy Club. He said they let me host a show and paid $50. Then I got hired to write jokes for Tom Arnold's early Roseanne days. Nobody knew who he was then. Maybe even now. Pete Davidson. Oh, my first job, he said, was a tiny part in Nick Cannon's movie School Dance. My character, Stink Finger was the name, walked in the background, smelled his fingers, and looked at the camera. It's the same way I feel when I look at Pete Davidson. More about Kim Kardashian's pet collie, Pete Davidson. At the museum party, he was off his leash. He and she arrived late with an entourage and elbowed through seated guests, not near Caitlyn Jenner, who was three tables behind and unable to walk without repeated tripping. I know more, but perish anyone thinking I might be unkind. You know, it's not like I am. Belle Powley, she said I was in M.I. High, a children's TV show playing a child spy undercover with pencils and walkie-talkies in an underground lair. That's when I was a kid, and I got bullied badly in school because of it. Marissa Tomei told me, I had a line in The Flamingo Kid with Matt Dillon, which was, quote, Oh, you're so drunk. When I auditioned, they said I didn't have to take my top off. What that meant, I don't know, but it was either my boobs didn't make it or I was determined for something else. I don't know what her boobs had to do with the part, but that's something else. Steve Buscemi. I tried stand-up. One night at the improv, I got on and they gave me cab fare. I shared the cab with Gilbert Gottfried. I was so excited. He said like two words and we were to split the fare. But <laughs> although I love him, he stiffed me. I now wish to expend a little body fluid on Megan and Harry, his ex-royal highness. Prince Empty wouldn't know his crest from a hole in the ground. On camera, on TV, his ankle socks were so short, like his smarts. When he crossed his leg, the skin showed. Even unemployed peasants know that's a no-no. Mimi Megan did not need to hit Google, as she claimed, to learn discipline and manners and palace 101. She's a phony. When you sign on to take a job, you are responsible for its ethics and ethos. You first learn how the job works. You are responsible for its ways and means, hours, duties, wardrobe, attitude, culture. That's before you decide you'll plan to change their rigid ways. And where was Prince empty? He was so busy... Certainly not sorting out his sock drawer. He could have given her a palace tutor, teach her the ways of this new job, how you carry your purse, how handle her majesty, how you stand, sit, converse, what are your duties, the no-nos and yes-yeses. 
She knew enough to get a hairdresser for her sit-downs. She knew enough to get two side hairs flopped down her face, which she kept schlepping back so they didn't impede the open mouth. Listen, when you get cast in any acting role, you first study it, memorize, practice. She came onto this royal set, an egotistical, ambitious amateur. She could have memorized the rules, learn to play with the cast. The only throne she can sit on is the one in her loo. She got what she wanted. Fame, money, TV, career, temporary title, wife of Prince Empty, and babies. She just didn't get to be the leading lady. Didn't get to be the empress. She had ego not smarts. She blew the audition. She didn't know who she was when she met him. Oh, please, please, I could throw up. I'd been told by those in-the-know Brits, high-level society types, that she'd been schlepping around the rich places of Europe, husband hunting, because they were there and they saw. Kate Middleton didn't like her? Too effing bad. Kate already got the job. Lover, don't love her, who cares? The point is, she was smart. She has a close, tight circle. She plays the game. She knows the rules. Leading ladies like Kate don't always appreciate secondary cast members who look to overtake them. When you had a role in an acting scene, not everyone mistook you for the star with your name above the title. You were second above an extra but second, a cast member. It was beyond time, know your lines, fit into the wardrobe, stay out of the close-up. This one didn't. There's lots of baggage behind this female. Her various parts have been out there. She is no walk in the park. Mimi Megan wanted to play leading lady. Tough. The scene's been set hundreds of years ago. She was only a supporting role, a B-list player, not headlining any marquee. Now Netflix is filming her. Maybe RuPaul will next play her. She and Prince Empty now mingle with celebrities. But down the line, the next young generation won't care a fig. Ask Fergie who was married for an hour to that other HRH, then dumped the castle and him. She has been known to scratch from money and invitations. I even remember meeting a bitter and sad Duchess of Windsor after the palace dumped her. Mimi Megan blew off her sister-in-law, her brother-in-law, her majesty, her Prince Philip, a whole country, her father, best friend, and the press. Her makeup's good, her wardrobe's good, she walks, she talks good. And the good news is, she got Prince empty. Remember Diana's famous, we were three people in this marriage? Well, at some point, there might be nobody in this one. Prince empty's future employment is bleak. He can fly a helicopter, wait another 20 minutes, and could be, even this wife will replace him with a drone. And now, a station break. And then, I'm right back. So don't go away. Trust me. <laughs>
I'll get better. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Now, an interview with Larry Amaros. If you don't know his name, not my fault. Just know that many stand-up comedians and sit-down authors do. He has written crates of the jokes and smart-ass lines they either say or write or claim. Here we go, Larry Amaros. So, Larry, how did you start in the old days to be a joke writer? Um... Believe it or not, I took a comedy writing class years ago. Um, a guy named Dick Lord, who used to work for the Catskills, taught us. Uh, you know, a friend of mine in college, she and I decided to take this course. And we'd always had, you know, we were always pretty funny. And it just went, took off from there. So back in those days, um, comedians would buy like individual jokes. So I just like write jokes and I sent stuff to Joan Rivers and a couple of other people. And they just start buying jokes, you know, and it was. It's so much better than working. <laughs> okay, in the I I understand that. Is that supposed to be a joke? Forget it. Okay, so no, were no. we were we funnier than were we funnier than in the days of the Marx Brothers and Bob Hope? We're not as funny now, are we? I think it's I think it's very different. I mean, the thing that I noticed is there's a lack of performance skills. You know, it used to be you were putting on a show, you were entertaining people. And now they just seem to kind of wander around in dirty clothes being ironic. I don't, I don't know, quite, you know, what happened to punchlines? You know, no, I understand. Up on punchlines. I, I understand that. But I was married to a comedian, so I know the difference. Are we dirtier now than we used to be using certain words that we never were able to use before? Or are we not able to use the words? I don't know. The language has changed. Well, the language, you know, it went through a phase where I think it, it got very, very dirty. And, and look, it, there's a difference between, you know, dirty and naughty and bawdy. But the language is kind of, you know, if you, need, if you need dirty language to make the joke work, it's probably not a very good joke. Okay, but I don't understand a lot of the stuff. Were you ever bleeped the stuff that you wrote if you did it on television, did they ever bleep you? No, not on TV. I get bleeped, believe it or not, on Facebook a lot. Um, where, you know, I got bleeped. I wrote a little thing. Um, I can't remember what the, the joke was. Um, something about how I took I took half of Viagra and I wound up going to bed with a midget. You know, because that's I can't funny. That's funny. I thought okay. so. And they wrote back, midget is hate speech. Midget is what? They call it hate speech. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, okay, okay. All right, then there was another time I was responding to somebody. Some woman wrote a question on Facebook, like to everybody who was on Facebook. And she said, how do you stop your husband from cheating? And I wrote, kill him in his sleep, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, sounds good to me. They told me I was inciting violence. Well, who was the one who told you? How did, how, how did that work? Who's the one who... Okay, here's the question. On your account from Facebook. And it, it says your account, you're being suspended for 48 hours for inciting violence. I was like, really? <laughs> for God's sake. Okay. What, <laughs> what, has happened, what has happened, though, since the pandemic? 
What has happened to comedy? I'm not seeing anything as funny. Is it me or is it the situation or what? I think it's, I think it's a lot to do with um, the way I kind of look at it. If the people on the far right are humorless and the people on the far left are offended by everything, which means you have nowhere to work. <laughs> <laughs> Everything bothers everybody. If you talk to the right wing, they got to stick up their butt. And you talk to the left wing, oh, my God, everything is, oh, my God, the worst guy's falling. Like, calm down. They're jokes. Really. You know, I. it's not as funny because people are afraid to say anything. Well, you can't say ludicrous. anything. In the current black it's, lives, with black lives, you can't say anything. With, the, with what they call this woke community who you can't say anything so what can you make jokes about well you know i don't know i you know you can be overly woke i'll tell you right now i understand there's personal sensitivities but it's like when when i made the little facebook joke about the midget the, the, yeah. the suggestion was why didn't you say little person well because little person doesn't work rhythmically within the body of the joke it's not funny the munchkins weren't little people. They were midgets. You can't say that anymore, apparently. You know, I don't, this, I, you know, it's making me, everybody's offended by everything. You know, Joan used to always say, Joan Ruby would say, if I offend you, turn the channel, don't buy a ticket. It's not that complicated. You're not being held hostage at gunpoint. Don't come to the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I look back, you look at, you know, George Carlin, it was his birthday yesterday. And yeah. George was brilliant, brilliant. Could he work today? I don't know. You know, could where work could he work? Bruce where could he work? Where could he work? You can't work on television. You can't work on radio. You can't work on theaters. You can't say anything because everyone is offended all of a sudden. Will that change? Will comedy change? Yes, I think there's. I think you're going to see um, a, a pushback to all this woke nonsense. Um, you know, and the other thing I always think, I mean, you know, if you're offended by something, I have to be quiet. How is that my job? I'm offended. <laughs> well, what do you want me to do about it? Go to get, get some counseling. Go to a therapist. What do you want from me? <laughs> if you're that skin, stay in the house and be shut in. Leave people alone. <laughs> I. I I, Cindy, it's going crazy. I know I'm getting Listen, old, but I don't care. <laughs> no, I understand that. I understand. I already got old, so I don't care. But I know you <laughs> used to write jokes not only for Joan Rivers, but you wrote them for, for Manilow. You wrote them for Mel Brooks. You wrote them for people, even a few people who are still alive. Didn't you always write jokes for everybody? <laughs> yeah. And I saw, you know, not long ago, well, maybe it was on a repeat, Mel Brooks was um, on, I think it was Piers Morgan with Carl Reiner. And he was talking yeah. about how political correctness is killing comedy, and he couldn't get a dime now to make Blazing Saddles. Couldn't get a dime. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember. I remember. And was there a funnier movie? I don't think so. You know, I mean... What? It's like just like lighten up, lighten up everybody. They're jokes. And now, you know, we've lost a lot of comedians have died in the last year. You know, Louis Anderson and Norm MacDonald. And this would be a good time to embrace comedy and embrace the comedians as opposed to shutting them down. 
You know? Okay, I mean, you are now I, write, you're writing a book, aren't you? What are you writing? All the things we can't talk about. It's, uh, the working title <laughs> is um, Musings of a Sourpuss. And it's, it's a bunch of essays because I can't write anything with a through line because, you know, my brain doesn't work like that. So I only write books you can read on the toilet. That's my goal. I beg your pardon. What? 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 Say that again. Say it slowly so I can understand. What are you talking about? I, the, what I write, I write books that are like short essays because I'm not smart enough to develop a plot. And the goal, <laughs> I'm not, the goal is basically just to write things people can read while they're sitting in the toilet. It, well, it, it requires I, nothing. I mean, you have such quality. I mean, I know you a long time, Larry, and it's really high-class stuff that you're telling me. Telling me, tell, tell me, oh, wait, 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 wait. Tell me about the cockamamie Oscars and the slap. Did you do anything funny about that? Well, my, my first thought was, you know, would he, he slapped Chris Rock. He have slapped The Rock. I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, I, the other thing is, he didn't punch him. He slapped him. I mean, who does that? A waitress with a fresh customer who got a little handsy? You're going to hit him, hit him. Knock him on his ass. He gave him a little slap. But it's like mean girl stuff. I mean, seriously? I think the other thing that really bothered me is like, if you watched it, it was actually a very soft joke. It was not a hardball joke in any way, shape, or form. You know? And it wasn't an alopecia joke. It was a joke you know. about... I don't know what provoked that. I mean, she, you know, Jay Pinkett Smith shot him a look, and he got up and slapped Chris. And all I know, I think Will Smith is the only star whose stock dropped after winning an Oscar. <laughs> I mean, how do you do that? You win the Academy, and nobody will hire you. Okay, I got to you know, ask you now. How do you protect a joke? There are always ways. How do you protect a joke? Comics steal jokes, don't they? All the time, um, you know, and there was a couple, couple of comics who always had reputations for that. But, you know, I was always told you had to have it either published or what I used to do back in the, in the day. I would put I would, I would register all my stuff like I put together like a four page treatment of jokes and just register with the writers. Go, so there's at least some protection for it, even minimally. You know, you, you how can you how can you protect a joke? They can always change it a little bit. You can't protect a joke. You can't make a joke about a small guy if he's tall. So how do you protect it? Well, you know, years ago, there was a story about, because, you know, Robin Williams, as great a comedian as he was and as good a guy as he was, had the reputation for borrowing other people's material. And at one point, somebody apparently beat him up in the, at the comedy store, took a shot at him, and said, that's what I charge for my jokes. Now, that's, that's, oh. an, that's anecdotal, and, you know, and Robin was always really nice to me, and he was really funny. But he had a reputation for, you know, borrowing or more like a Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Okay, 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 okay. Here's what I need before I get rid of you. Here's the one thing I would like to give me Not one smart-ass line about New York. Is there anything you want to say about New York, about which yeah. I will then get cranky? Yeah. New York is a city that never sleeps because there's a Starbucks on every corner. That's okay. It's not great, but it's okay. What the hell? I'm not paying oh, you, so what do I care? It's fair. It's fair. It's fair. 
Right, right now, I'm sick of you. I'm not sick of you. And hang up, and I'll call you if I need you. Right now, I don't need you anymore, okay? I love Fair you. Fair enough. You Thanks, too, baby. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye, Larry. Goodbye, Cindy. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Now, David Patterson. I'm about to speak to David Patterson. He was our 55th governor of New York State. He came in in 2008. He replaced Elliot Spitzer. He was our first black governor and our first legally blind governor. And I love him. I also had dinner with him last night. Okay, David, you are our 55th governor. You were the first African-American governor. You were the first legally blind governor. Weren't you terrified? Well, I think I was, I think you'd be terrified whether you were blind or whether you uh, were uh, disabled. If people call you up at uh, 1.30 in the morning and tell you that the governor's resigning and you're going to be governor at 2.30 in the afternoon, I think that would just about scare anyone, and it certainly scared me. <laughs> what did you, oh, seriously, what, I mean, I've always meant to find out how this happened. What happened? How did you react? Well, um, I had um, come in to Albany. It was a Monday morning, March 8th. Uh, March uh, 10th, 2008. And um, there was some event that the governor couldn't go to, and they asked me at the last minute to go for him. And I carried on about how busy I am, but I would go anyway. Lieutenant governors are never busy, Cindy. Don't let them tell you that they're busy. They're not. And But, but we have pride. We have pride. So I thought they should give me more notice. So I go and I do the event, and I come back. And then I get this strange phone call around 12 o'clock in the afternoon, and they said that the cardinal was coming at 1.30, and he's got all the bishops, and he's supposed to meet with the governor, but the governor isn't going to be there on time, so I should take the meeting. So I said to my secretary, this man who worked for me, I said, what is wrong with you? When the cardinal comes to visit, it's a head of state to head of state you don't delegate in a situation like that. And I use an example. I said, that would be like if the Queen of England came to the White House to see President Bush, and he's busy, so he sends Cheney. That's not the way it works around here. <laughs> and, yeah. and they said, well, well, the governor said you could do the meeting. Take it. He gave it to you. Take it. I said, has everybody in this capital gone crazy? Well, actually, it wasn't that everybody had gone crazy. It was that everybody knew that I was going to be governor in an hour, except that the governor had said that no one should speak to me. He would speak to me himself. But now down to a half hour, and he hasn't spoken to me, so his secretary calls me up, and he's mumbling. He would tell me two <laughs> months later the reason he was mumbling is he went in Spitzer's bathroom and tied a towel around his head to try to muffle his voice because he knows that if I become governor and no one told him, I'm going to take it out on him because he's second in charge. And he says, look, governor, there's something about a prostitute, something about a scandal. But I couldn't make out all the words because he wasn't talking loud enough. So he texts secretary, whose name was Charles, and Charles comes up, and when I opened the door to let Charles in the office, even I could see that he was completely red. <laughs> and he said, you know what's happening, right? I said, um, what was it, that they had an investment club and some invested in a prostitution ring or something? He was, 
David. There was no investment club. He he was with the prostitutes. Do you understand that? And I said, <laughs> yeah, I think I do. So I said, so what do you think I should be doing right now? He said, if I were you, I'd go and sit down at your desk, take out your pen, and write some notes, which in about a half an hour we're going to call your inauguration. Speech. <laughs> That's how it all started. <laughs> but if if I'm if I'm remembering, and of course I can't remember anything, wasn't there a time you couldn't even recognize your staff? Yes. Uh, what was that? What was know, that so, story? So, you know, so I'm the governor, and when you're lieutenant governor, everybody ignores you. So you know, you try to start a conversation <laughs> with people; they don't want to be bothered with you because you're lieutenant governor. You know, <laughs> and um, I. Went to a reception. I'd been governor for about two weeks. And this gentleman came over and said, gentlemen, he said, Governor, we have a suggestion for you. And you could do this and you could do that. And it would really help New Yorkers. It'd be great for you. I said, that's great. Give me your card. I'll call you. He goes, I work for you, Governor. <laughs> oh, well, I was just testing. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Were you, listen, David, I mean, I sit next to you all at dinners. I love you. We, we hug each other. You've been here. Weren't you terrified, actually terrified? Um, I wouldn't say I was terrified by the fact that I was becoming governor. I'll tell you what made me terrified. Cindy, it was as if someone backed a Brinks truck up to the Capitol and dropped $4 billion on the ground. That's how everyone in Albany reacted to Spitzer leaving. This was their power grab. So... For instance, I retreated to a home that I owned in Gilderland, which is 70 miles west of Albany, where my family and I would spend the weekend sometimes. And I'm barricaded in the house. And the boyfriend of one of my staff members, he's a lobbyist. He drives to the front of the house and he's arguing with her that he needs to come and talk to me. It's very important. What could be very important at a time like that unless it's important <laughs> to him? It's not important to me. So the next time he called her phone, I answered and I said, Bob. I'm going to let you come in and talk to me. You have five minutes, and that's how that's how long you have for the next four years. He goes, oh, well, then maybe this isn't a good time. I'm like, right, Bob, get the hell out of here. <laughs> Cindy, let me tell you how bad it got. Let yeah, me tell you how bad ahead. it got. The one, yeah. one time, I, I'm not going to say who it was, but a major statewide figure called me up like ten times. And he says, I got to see you. I got to see you. I said, listen, come on. You've been around like me. Give me a couple of weeks to settle in and whatever it is we'll deal with. No, we got to deal with it right now. So I make him come in on a Saturday morning. And he says to me that Spitzer was going to make him the head of this agency on June 1st, 2008. But now that Spitzer has gone, maybe it's not going to happen. I said, no, if that's what Spitzer was going to do, I'd be happy to do it. You'll be great. Well, about a week later, and who was running the agency at the time called me and he said, Governor, I've never cursed at a governor in my life, but, but if I could, I would do it right now. I said, what's the problem? He said, if you wanted me to leave as a gentleman, all you had to do was call me up and tell me you got someone else. But no, all your people are rigging it so that I leave on June 1st. I said, but the guy told me that everybody knows about this. He said, well, I didn't know about it. And he said, I don't think the Spitzer knew about people. The whole thing was a farce, Cindy, to try to pow- grab that position that this man had always wanted. And I oh. had to be the one to, that took the hit for it. Listen, I, there are so many stories. I Please, I, I know I remember a story about an ex 
wife who got you in trouble. What is it I remember? I remember some damn thing. Well, no, she didn't get me in trouble. I got myself in trouble. What happened? You're always in trouble. uh, Yeah. So what was the story? After I came out of office, there was a daughter of a woman that I went to law school with, and she was trying to get into the law school that we went to, and I was able to help her get in. So she takes me out to dinner to thank me, but she's 25, and she's dressed like she's 25. And um, I'm sitting there with her, and this woman comes over and says, Hi, David, how are you? And it was dark in the restaurant. I said, Oh, I'm sorry, I don't remember your name. And she said, You don't remember my name? I was married to you for 20 years. (laughs) My former wife, Michelle. (laughs) <laughs> but you, can, you can't see a damn thing anyway So how could you recognize anybody? I, well, that night I certainly didn't recognize her. And then I said to her, oh, so Michelle, what brings you here? She goes, it's Denise's 60th birthday. Well, Denise was a close family friend, but I know that Michelle and all these women are sitting around the table, and I'm sitting two tables away with a woman who looks like she's one-third my age and only has one-third of her body covered. So finally, when we got to leave, I went over to the table, and I said to my wife and her girlfriends, the ladies, I'm leaving the building, so you'll have to find something else to gossip about. <laughs> <laughs> David, you're so ad- you are adorable. Uh, you are adorable. Tell me also, I've been to the mansion. I was there with Mario Cuomo, and I know the mansion. Did anything naughty ever happen in the mansion, David? Nothing. Nothing naughty happened in the mansion, but I sure felt like it. I sure felt like it was naughty. Because in the governor's bathroom, they have a hot tub. And the staff kept telling me, go in the hot tub. It's wonderful. You feel great. It's a great massage. But the hot tub had been put in by Governor Mario Cuomo. And the current yeah. attorney general was Attorney General Andrew Cuomo. So I figured as soon as I got the hot in the hot tub and I threw a switch, I'd electrocute myself. So, so, but one night I went to the gym and I was, you know, exhausted and I thought, boy, it would be nice to go in that hot tub. So I turned the hot tub on and in, I'm sitting there with the bubbles and all of a sudden I hear these noises and these lights are going on and off. And I literally, Cindy, dived, dove out of the hot tub onto the floor. I thought I was going to be electrocuted. I get up and I, I put a, I put a bathrobe on and I call the state police who were, they, they're outside. And I said, could you please come in here and shut this thing off? Because I don't know how it works. And he said, no, Governor, we don't come into the mansion unless, you know, there's some police action. But each staff member picks a night where they're on duty. So we'll call the person who's on duty and we'll have them sent over. And I said, I said no, it's late. That's OK. They said, no, Governor, we'll do this for you. Just sit there. 20 minutes later, I hear someone come in. I hear them come up the stairs. They go through the front door of my bedroom, and it's the only staff member who is under 30 and female. And I'm thinking, oh, this is just not going to work out well tonight. So she, she says, come on, Governor, let's go look at the hot tubs. We go in the room. I'm still in my bathrobe now. And she gets on the side of the hot tub, and she leans all the way down because it actually goes before, oh, oh, okay, below floor yeah, level. Okay. And this woman Well, what the hell do you know? You don't see anything anyway. What the hell do well, you know? You can't see? I'll, t- 
I, I knew that that tub went below a floor level, that she's leaning all the way down. And I'm sitting and I come up, as I've always thought, when there's a problem, you have to have a plan. And my plan is if this woman falls in this hot tub and seriously hurts herself, number one, I'm going to drag her out of the tub. Number two, I'm going to fill the tub with hot water. Number three, I'm going to take an electric iron, plug it in, and throw it in the tub. And number four, I'm going to jump in behind it because no one would ever believe that she just came to my home at 1130 at night to fix the tub. <laughs> Listen, the trouble with you, David, is you're very boring as an interview. You never have anything to say. That's the basic problem. Okay. I'm going to work so now, Cindy. I'm yeah, going to work I mean, you're, you're just so boring. Could you tell me your opinion on today's governor's race? Uh, so, Governor Kathy Hochul, I think, would be the odds-on choice to win the Democratic primary because uh, Tom Swasey, while he's a common-sense Democrat, um, he just doesn't seem to connect with the public. And the other candidate is very far to the left, Jamani Williams. He's a charming individual when you meet him, but he's not going to connect either. So I think Kathy Hochul is going to win the Democratic primary. In the Republican primary, I think Lee Zeldin is most likely going to win that particular primary. But I think that uh, Rob Astorino, and I have to admit, he's a friend of mine, uh, he has the temperament to be a conservative and yet someone who can appeal to people on the other side of the aisle. And to win in November, the Republicans are going to need Democrats to vote for the Republican, as they did in Nassau County last year. And that was the end of the Nassau County executive, Laura Curran. Bruce Blakeman is now the county executive. So you're going to need that kind of temperament to win. Uh, I uh, served in the legislature with Lee Zeldin. He's great, but I just don't think he has it. Now, the other option is that former Governor Andrew Cuomo could come back and run as an ah! independent. Ah! And uh, if he does that, I'm going to go right back to the mansion and jump in that tub and, 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 um, <laughs> and, and throw the iron in on it again, because honestly... <laughs> You know, there are too many allegations for there not to be some credibility to some of them. I'm not saying that all the women are right, and I'm not saying that all the accusations are totally accurate. But there's a horrible, disdainful, toxic work environment under his uh, leadership that we don't need in this state. In fact, we don't need it in any company where employees are working for a living. Uh, okay. But he would, have a, he would have a chance if he runs as an independent. Okay, I have to now say to you, you are very boring as an interview, and that's why I have to get rid of you, Governor, because you just have nothing to say. So get off the phone, and I'll vote for you no matter what the hell you're doing, and I love you. Okay? Uh, I love you, Thank too. You. And, um, take <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, David. Goodbye. <laughs> Did you have fun? <laughs> I did, and I love you. Get off the phone. Oh, good. We'll do it again. <laughs> Goodbye. This is the old Bob Grant exit. Get off my phone. <laughs> take care. Bye. Bye. The Cindy Adams Show. 77 WABC. Okay, me, I'm back. So now I complain and I take just a little time to grind my teeth. Listen, are we a great nation or what? Let us speak now about our White House doddering dolt. He has spent a lifetime on the public dole, not ever once for five minutes, never sweated once to earn a living. 
never worried about goods coming in or employees not showing up or not worrying about paying salaries or worrying about how to support his family or his business. So after his long, gimme-gone, freebie lifetime dining at others' tables and having seconds, maybe thirds, on other people's booze and free gifts, what has he since accomplished? Nothing. Nada. Niente. Zero. If he were in an acting company, he'd just play some road company third-rate tent in Yuma. Never Broadway. His VP, oi, please, he disliked no Kamala do even before picking her, even back when she was in the debates. The reason she got chosen, I mean, please, it was obvious to all. And now I would like to pee on our mayor. I'm sorry to say it. He's an obvious embarrassment. Parties, photo ops, TV speeches, celebrity meets, future promises, tailor appointments, name one accomplishment, any accomplishment. I'm flexible, anything. He has done nothing, zero. He just speaks to cameras or celebrities or pals in saloons. And, hey, how about the mandatory every 10-year reapportionment we just went through? We got a Democratic governor replacing a Democratic governor. We got a Democratic mayor who has replaced a Democratic mayor. We got Democratic control of the state and city. We got Democrats in control of this gerrymandering. To survive is their lone, only, sole task. They don't even have to think. They don't have anything else to do. Yet their incompetence was such that they effed up their one job of gerrymandering. The result was New York's highest court of appeals, elected and supported by Democrats, who dumped their reapportionment plan. Incompetent Democrats in the Democratic city, Senate, Congress, country, the diocese, the plains, the farms, the toilets, turned out to be pigs, hogs. They were greedy. They were removed and now no longer able to screw up further. The court has instead ordered a special independent tax force. It's to be done in May. It is now up to August 23rd. Great, since everyone's away on summer vacation then. And State Senator Mike Generis was put in charge of this reapportionment. Be it known, he is the genius who peed on the Amazon deal coming into New York. He is the enlarged brain who wouldn't let them establish a headquarters here. Hey, New York, New York, the Bronx is up and those donkey Democrats are down. But we in New York have to be grateful. Our taxes could be a lot worse. Suppose our politicians had to pay on what they think they're worth. Manhattan? Oh, please. It's gotten so bad that the hookers on 42nd Street are even wearing crash helmets.
only in New York, kids. Only in New York. Yankees president Randy Levine pitch on how to save New York. Reduce the size of employees. Focus on core services. No more consultant contracts. Cut 25% non-employee spending. Institute a hiring freeze. Refinance city debt. Sell properties the city leases. Eliminate travel conferences and per diems. Downsize government. Can his municipal Magna Carta, published in an Empire report, be run by a pro Paul scratching to be mayor? Or does this city need a businessman with sense to run it? It's a nonpartisan issue. Anyone willing to move back and return us to greatness? Candidates have already asked to meet me. I see what's happening. I see the hurt. I see New York City needs help. Former Governor Spitzer once told me it takes a year. Our Historical Society CEO told me four years. I don't know, said Randy. I'll guess two years. The Justice Deputy Attorney General, New York's Deputy Mayor for Economic Development in the 90s, Randy says, look, I was born here. New York needs police, sanitation, emergency responses, no budget fix, or we go bankrupt. Cutting commercial rent tax is one way. New taxes are detrimental, or more residents and businesses leave. We must encourage individual opportunity. And unions are part of the solution, not the problem. I also suggest a one-time bring New York City back bond Maybe casinos, maybe a marijuana or sports betting shortfall. Raise these issues. Start a discussion. Listen, since Peter Minuit didn't name a borough after Andy or Randy, our mayor may award him a gold key to City Hall's men's room for all his great ideas. And I want to thank everyone for listening. And I am now going back to loving New York and having a cup of coffee. And please, thank you for listening to me. It's only in America, kids. Only in America. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.